peaceful, all-functioning things are transient, unstable, ever-changing, arising and passing away. So too is our opportunity to learn and practice the Dharma. So too are our lives. And when we leave this body, the body stays behind. Our friends and relatives stay behind. Our reputation and possessions stay behind. And it's only the karmic imprints and our mental habits that continue on. The time of death, our likes and dislikes that we nurtured or avoided so much during our whole life are completely irrelevant. All the things that we worked so hard to get leave us. All the people we work so hard to avoid, we'll never see again. So this makes us ask, what am I holding on to in this life? It makes us ask, what is really valuable? in this life? Is what I clutch and cling to what is really valuable? Considering what comes with me and what stays behind when I die. So thinking like this helps to calm the mind and it helps us to set priorities. And it enables us to see samsara a little bit more accurately. And in that way increases our motivation to be free from it. And so we turn our mind to the Dharma and work for liberation. But we've got to include all sentient beings in that wish. Because we're intimately related to each and every one of them. And to seek only our own liberation and forget about everybody else. It isn't proper, it's so limited. So we have to stretch our mind to include all these living beings in our motivation and stretch our mind to aim for the highest enlightenment for their benefit.
So one of the biggest enemies of monastic training is our old friend attachment. So this meditation on death is one of the uh, very forceful uh, antidotes to that old friend of attachment that says, I want, I need, it'll make me happy. What's wrong with that? Now, so uh, our attachment isn't going to go away all at once. Now, attachment is the, in the second noble truth, it's listed as the source of the you know, principal source or origin of samsara. Not ignorance, which is actually the root of samsara. That craving, attachment, clinging, grasping, all these things are what keep samsara going round and around. So we can't expect our attachment just to vanish instantaneously. Certainly not going to do that. So the wisdom realizing emptiness is the real antidote to it. But until we get to that point, then we have to work with other antidotes, for example, thinking about impermanence and death. We'll find with attachment that, you know, something might be burning in our mind for a while, and then we'll really work with it in our meditation, and we'll have a really clear meditation at some point on impermanence and death, and say, what the world uses it holding on to that crazy thing, you know? It's like, this is useless. And then our mind releases, lets go of whatever it was, idea or object or person or whatever, you know, that we were clinging to. Now, at that point, part of our mind says, oh, look, I let go. Oh, that's very nice. Now I don't need to worry about that attachment anymore. I just need to go on living my life and practicing the Dharma. Mm. My experience has been that, you know, as soon as you get kind of uh, comfy and cushy and a little bit complacent about now I've dealt with that problem, it comes right out of left field and bangs you in the head again. And so... It's this thing, you know, we kind of, in working with our mind, we apply the antidote, let go of something, and then stop applying the antidote, figuring that it's all taken care of. Uh, But we've got to continually apply the antidote, not as a forceful thing, but as a way of integrating the, the understanding that that antidote presents to us, with how we actually think. Okay? So in the, in the case, you know, if we have a strong attachment, then we meditate on impermanence. The attachment goes down. But if our mind is still grasping at everything being permanent and thinking we're never going to die, even though that attachment went down for a little while, you know, it's going to come up again with something else. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if we keep our meditation on impermanence and death very fresh and contemplate it and, and remember it, you know, in a frequent way, then it begins to integrate more with our mind and change how we actually look at things 
And that becomes a preventative measure so that those various attachments can't arise again. Okay? Getting what I mean? Trying to think, what's a good example? You, um, I don't know, you don't have enough vitamins, you know, in your diet, so you, and you feel really weak, so you start taking vitamin. Oh, you know what's a really good example? Forget the vitamin one. TB. TB is an excellent example. You're suffering from TB, you start to take the medicine, okay? You feel better, so you feel you don't need to continue taking the medicine. So you stop, and it's okay for a while. And then the TB comes back. Okay? So it's the same thing. You know, you have some attachment. You apply the antidote and remedy impermanence and death. The attachment goes down. You're okay for a while. But if you don't keep reinforcing that antidote in the mind, then it just comes back again. Okay? So what we've got to do is really integrate the antidote with our mind, you know. At the beginning, the antidote is usually very intellectual. Yeah. It's like, up from here, up, you know. Oh, yes, I'm going to die, you know. (laughs) Better not grasp on anything. That's kind of stupid. Um, But we don't really feel like we're going to die. Our inside feeling is, you know, death happens to other people. Yeah, or I'm going to die, but later on. And even we're in the hospital and we're 89 years old, you know, and we're weak and can't get out of bed, we still feel I'm not going to die. Yeah. So unless we really keep that antidote fresh in the mind, then, you know, the TB comes back, the attachment comes back. Yeah. So it's it's got to be really integrated, not just on an intellectual level. The the Dharma shouldn't be like like peanut butter on bread, okay? Because the peanut butter doesn't seep into the bread; it's just lying on top of it. So that's like an intellectual knowledge of Dharma. It's just sitting there on top, spread all over the bread, but you know it's not in it. It should our understanding of the Dharma should should be like. You know, when you melt the cheese. What? Yeah, it should be like maple syrup and pancakes. Yeah, the syrup just right down into the pancakes. Yeah, you can't differentiate it. So that's what the antidote should be like in our mind. And it's, you know, at the beginning when the antidotes are still very intellectual, there's so often this feeling of kind of like you're wearing shoes that don't fit quite right. You know, you're glad you have shoes, but they don't fit quite right. You're a little bit uncomfortable in them. You know, so it's like you know the Dharma and it makes sense. You're glad to have it, but you just can't get comfortable in it. Okay? So that's that's really kind of natural at the beginning. And it's after a while, as you continue, continue... Then it's like breaking in your shoes and you become really comfortable. Then the Dharma seems really, you know, kind of, yeah, feels really homey and stuff. Yeah, you're not sitting there shooting yourself all the time.
Okay, so we're going to continue on. We've been doing, um, you know, the fruits of the Samana life and uh, have actually been going back to the Brahmajala Sutra because part of the Brahmajala Sutra was re- uh, repeated in the Sutra of, um, of the fruits of the Shramanas. Oh, you know what else I was thinking I wanted to mention? You know how at the beginning of the, the Sutra uh, on the fruits of the Shramana life, uh, the Buddha spoke about, uh, well, there was the story about King uh, Jarasattu who had gone and met all these other, uh, you know, sages of the time and how they had all these really kind of wrong views of things. So I started, and, and then after that, he went to see the Buddha and asked him the same question, and we've been going through the answer. So I was thinking, well, why did the Buddha go through, you know, why in the sutras this, there this quite lengthy um, introduction that, that uh, tells about all the wrong views of the non-Buddhists? How does that fit into a sutra where then he's going to talk about morality and concentration and the fruits of the Shramana life? Why? You know? So I thought about it, and what I came up with is this whole thing about why you have worldly right, right view. It's the first of the Eightfold Noble Path. Because if you have that, then practicing ethical conduct, concentration, meditation, goes along properly. You know why you're doing those things. You have the correct view. So when you keep ethical discipline, you keep proper ethical discipline, not weird ethical discipline. When you practice concentration, you do it correctly. When you practice wisdom, you do it correctly, not doing weird stuff. Okay? And so it made me think, yeah, if you have that worldly correct view about karma, you know, and how karma works, then you're going to have some motivation to practice the rest of the path and to practice it in a correct way. Whereas if you were like some of those non-Buddhists who say, you know, even if you kill somebody, there's no negative karma, or there's no rebirth, you know, so it doesn't matter, or there's predetermination, so it's all fixed anyway, you know, or there's a great God who's going to do it all for you. You know, if you have any of those kind of views, then just by the kind of view you have, when you start practicing ethical discipline, you're not going to do it in a correct way. You're going to do it all weird. Okay? So you can really see, for example, I mean, there's so many spiritual practices throughout the world. Yeah, there's people who make animal sacrifices thinking that it's going to gain them great realizations. Yeah. Well, you have the negativity of the animal sacrifice. But what caused that? You know, it's the wrong view of not understanding karma properly. Okay? So here you have a wrong ethical practice, but it comes because of a wrong view. Or you have, um, you know, people who, the Buddha spoke a lot about this, you know, who just are believing in the efficacy of rituals. You know, it doesn't matter your mind changing, you just have to do the ritual properly. So if you have that kind of view, 
and you practice in that way, then you're not going to really tame your mind. Okay, so so much comes from having the right view, the right understanding of karma and rebirth. So I think that's why the Buddha spoke so much about that by illustrating these various wrong views at the beginning of the sutra. Okay, so now we're going to continue with um, how a Buddha and his disciples keep pure ethical conduct. So whereas some ascetics and Brahmas, Brahmins feeding on the food of the faithful make their living by such base arts, such as wrong means of livelihood as palmistry, okay, so fortune-telling from your palms or your souls, divining by signs, portents, dreams, body marks, mouse gnawings, fire ablations, ablations from a ladle of husk, rice powder, rice grains, gear oil from the mouth or blood, reading the fingertips, house and garden lore, skill in charms, ghost lore, earth house lore, snake lore, poison lore, rat lore, bird lore, crow, crow lore, foretelling a person's lifespan, charms against arrows, knowledge of animals' cries. The ascetic Gautama refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Okay? So here... You know, I guess these are all the kinds of things that, that people did, um, you know, in, at the time of the Buddha to tell the future. So these all have to do, you know, with signs on the body or the arrangement of thought signs of things that you find out outside, you know, how the, the mouse gnawed the different things. I think the Tibetan, Tibetans have something on crows like this and... Uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of different things. You know, it might have to do with, um, uh, you know, in our culture, it might have to do, you know, tea leaves. New Age crystals. And, uh, yeah, you know, New Age crystals and tea leaves and tarot cards and maybe I Ching and I don't know, but all these things of somehow uh, foretelling the future. And then doing all these charms against arrows and knowledge of animals' cries. And, you know, just have superstition, basically. Okay. Then, whereas some ascetics and Brahmins, Brahmins make their living by such base arts as judging the marks of gems, sticks, clothes, swords, spears, arrows, weapons, women, men, boys, girls, male and female slaves, elephants, horses, buffaloes, bulls, uh, cows, goats, rams, cocks, quail, iguanas, bamboo rats, tortoises, deer. The ascetics of Gautama refrains from such base arts. Okay? So, again, you know, different fortune-telling things and making (coughs) a living through, through doing that kind of stuff. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting the chiefs will march out, so the, you know, the military chiefs or the kings or whatever, the chiefs will march out, the chiefs will march back, the chiefs will advance, and the other chiefs will retreat. This is called being a political, what did they call it? People earn a lot of money for doing this. Political analysis? 
analyst? Yeah, isn't this? You know, how often you read the newspaper and they give you the analysis of something that hasn't happened yet. But then, you know, like before some big meeting, they'll give you all the analysis and predictions, but they never tell you what the result of the meeting is. Have you ever noticed that? You know, Niswik and Tan give you all the things about what's coming up. They very rarely tell you what actually happened afterwards. Okay, so all this kind of... uh you know, predicting all the, the military things, who's going to do what. Our chiefs will win and the other chiefs will lose. Okay, so Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld. Um, other chiefs will win and ours will lose. Oh, no. Can't say that. Thus, there will be victory for one side and defeat for the other. The ascetic Gotama refrains from such base arts. Okay, so getting all involved in politics and military warfare and who's going to do what and, you know, how it's all going to turn out and making all these predictions and, you know, having your mind filled with all of this kind of stuff and having other people look up to you as being a good analyst, okay? So you can see that that would really take, you, take yourself, take your mind away from your spiritual practice. You know, because it's always geared outward towards that kind of stuff. And imagine what happens if you predict wrong. Yeah? I mean, <laughs> like like George Bush, you know, predicting what was going to happen by going in Iraq. I mean, all of his advisors, they got it all wrong. They totally predicted wrong stuff. Yeah? So, not such good karma. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting an eclipse of the moon, the sun, a star, that the star and moon, uh, no, that the sun and moon will go on in their proper course, or they will go astray, that a star will go on in its proper course, or will go astray, that there will be a shower of meteors, a blaze in the sky, an earthquake, thunder, a rising, setting, darkening, brightening of the moon, the stars, the sun, and such. And such will be the outcome of these things. So all these astrological predictions, you know, and also all sorts of natural predictions, you know, what's going to happen. Well, these mostly have to do with the, the things not on the earth. I mean, the earthquake was the only one down here. Everything else was taking place in the sky. So doing all those kind of predictions... Um, so the ascetic Gotama refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. So nowadays, I guess they have all these mathematical things that they apply to to make these kind of predictions, and I guess people can find it useful. But you know, it's not the kind of work that a monastic should be doing. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as predicting good or bad rainfall, a good or bad harvest, security, danger, disease, health, or uh, so predicting those things, or accounting, computing, calculating, poetic composition, philosophizing, the ascetic Gautama refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Okay, so getting involved in predicting weather and disease and health, um, you know, and then getting involved in doing accounting, computing, poetic exposition, philosophizing, all these kinds of things. So, um, you know, I think 
it's not that those things are, those careers are inherently bad, but if it's, if you're a monastic and you're just doing that kind of stuff for your own personal gain, then you're taking yourself away from, from your, your practice. If you're doing those kinds of things for the benefit of your community, your community needs to do some accounting, you know, then you're doing it in service to the Sangha, so it's, it's something different. Okay, it's, and it's also not your means of earning a livelihood, it's your means of offering service. Yeah, whereas here it's really uh, pointing out that's how you earn your livelihood. Whereas some ascetics and Brahmins make their living by such base arts as arranging the giving and taking in marriage, engagements and divorces, declaring the time for saving and spending. So what's his name? Alan Greenspan? You know what he does? Okay. Did I get the right name? Yeah. Okay. Um, Declaring the time for bringing good or bad luck, procuring abortions, or it could that term also could mean reviving the fetus, kind of opposite meanings. Uh, using spells to bind the tongue, bind the jaw, making the hands jerk, causing deafness, getting answers with a mirror, a girl medium, a deva, worshipping the sun or the great Brahma, breathing fire, invoking the goddess of luck, the ascetic Gautama refrains from, refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Okay, so here, you know, things arranging marriages and engagements and divorces, so getting involved in all these things of, of you know, householders and your mind's completely filled with, you know, who's divorcing who and how they're going to get along, how they're going to divide the property and blah, blah. Um, you know, predicting good and bad luck. Uh, of course, arranging abortions wouldn't be very good. Um, using spells and any kind of magic. Um, getting answers with a mirror. So, you know, again, coming back to fortune telling or using mediums. Um, worshipping the sun or the great Brahma. That would be you know, like like going into church and worshiping God and Jesus, you know, really believing that they existed, breathing fire, invoke, invoking the goddess of luck, okay? Um, so all these kinds of things. I remember one time, some years ago, there was one Buddhist center in California that was having a fundraising event, and they asked a medium to come. And this medium was going to be doing all these things for the fundraising event for this Buddhist center. And I was going, huh? You know, what a weird thing. It's like, why are you teaching people that kind of stuff? And so you, you know, it's going to, t- first of all, get them enchanted with predicting worldly stuff. So it's going to get their mind all spinning around me and I and how I'm going to do in my worldly success um, but also it, it challenges their refuge, you know, because when people get so fixed on worldly success, then the refuge that the three jewels offer, which is involved with a much longer term goal, doesn't seem nearly as, as interesting, you know. And when we went there, when was it? It must have been two years ago. I don't think you were here at that time. Yeah, so the, there was some big thing, um, big New Age show down in uh, Spokane. So they called us and offered us a free booth. 
So we went down there. Um, <laughs> quite a trip. So we went down there and we just had some Dharma books, you know, and I was sitting there. I just went for, I think, one afternoon. Can't remember, maybe two afternoons. Anyway, on this side and on this side, there were both psychics. Yeah, and across the aisle was a guy who was going to open your third eye. Well, so many people went, you know, to the psychics. They were busy minute after minute for the whole afternoon. A few people came by and chatted and looked at Dharma books. But the psychics and the guy who was opening the third eye, they were really busy. Okay, and it was incredible watching the people who went to the psychics. You know, because there would be some psychic with, I don't know how he did these things. But the person would just be sitting there like this. You know, mesmerized. Why? Because the psychic, what's he talking about? Is she talking about? All about me. And what's going to happen to me? Totally mesmerized. And I've heard my Buddhist teachers comment that if... um, you know, we hear, we listen to the Buddhist teachings, and the Buddha says, oh, it's really important to do some purification, you know, because if you purify, it prevents illness, and it prevents all these other hindrances to your Dharma practice. And we hear that, and we go, oh, yeah, 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 manana. Okay? But if we go to a fortune teller, and a fortune teller says, you better purify because you're going to get sick, Wow, we are out there looking for that purification practice as fast as can be. Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird how we trust fortune tellers more than we trust what the Buddha said? And what fortune tellers, it always amazes me. You know, somebody goes and they're going to have their fortune told. Well, for one thing, I can tell you, you know, I know nothing about fortune telling, but I'm telling the truth. If I tell you you're going to get sick in the next year, For sure, that's going to happen, isn't it? Do we ever go a whole year without getting sick? No, we never go a year without getting sick. We're always sick at least once during the year. Okay, so I could make myself into a fortune teller saying, you're going to get sick next year. You know, you really better do some purification. And I'm going to say, oh, and you're going to meet some really interesting people next year. Well, do you meet interesting people every year? We do, don't we? You know, we meet interesting people all the time. So, anyway, you know, this is just kind of not not the kind of career opportunities that the Buddha wanted for his disciples. Okay. Um, okay. Um, where some ascetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the faithful make, the, make their living by such base arts such as wrong means of livelihood as appeasing the devas and redeeming vows to them, making earth house spells, causing virility or impotence, preparing or consecrating building sites, giving ritual rinsings and bathings, making sacrifices, giving emetics, purges, expectorants, and phlegmologogues, giving eye uh, ear, eye, or nose medicine, ointments, and counter-ointments, eye surgery, surgery, podiatry, using balms to counter the side effects of previous remedies, the ascetic Gautama refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Okay, so these are various ways that people deal with health concerns. 
okay, um, appeasing devas and redeeming vows to them. That's kind of, didn't we talk about that, making promises to, you were doing that, making promise, and, you know, over in your skit, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, Buddha, first you fulfill what I want, and then I'll make the offering. Yes. We're smart business people. We don't pay in advance. First the Buddha has to answer our prayer. Okay, well, we do this with devas and other sorts of living being. I mean, I saw this in Singapore. People do this a lot, actually. Um, what I thought was interesting was preparing and consecrating building sites, because that's something that, that the Tibetans do. And uh, I think the idea there is that we we share the the environment with a lot of other living beings. And so it's nice to, to acknowledge that and to acknowledge the interdependence and make an offering to those living beings. Okay? So I think doing that is fine, but the Buddha here, what he's talking about is making your living doing that. Say, so going from house blessing to house blessing. Yeah? Or the same thing here, there are a lot of medical remedies here. You know, um, giving ear, eye, nose, or medicine, ointments, and counter ointments, giving expectorants, and all these other kinds of things. So it's not that giving medical service is something bad, but it's it's not something that's not a way that a monastic should earn their livelihood is by doing that. Okay, which I think is interesting, you know, because on the Bodhisattva path we talk a lot about, you know doing all sorts of different things to benefit sentient beings. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, maybe this is one of the areas where, uh, you know, bodhisattva practice might change things. But still, on the other hand, if you think about it, you know, as a monastic, is it wiser for you to spend all your time running a health clinic or you know, doing your, your Dharma practice and serving sentient beings through the Dharma and letting other people run the health clinic. So it could be a thing, too, you know, where the Buddha's just pointing out, not saying that these things are bad, but more that these are things that lay people can do, you know, that, that it's not necessary for a monastic who's really aimed at developing their mind to go out and do them. On the other hand, you have His Holiness um, encouraging the Tibetan monastics to do more social service work and doing kinds of things that directly aid people. Yeah, And so the reason, there could be many reasons for this. You know, sometimes it's a really good way to to um, see how much we've progressed in our practice to, is to actually go out and do some social service work and engage with people and, and you know, see what goes on in our mind. And then actually it does benefit other people directly, and then it also lets people know that Buddhists care about society in large. Okay, But it could be the kind of thing like I can see, for example, you know, I, I do outreach to inmates and to prisoners, okay? But I try and balance it because I could very easily be doing, you know, letters to inmates 24 hours a day, yeah? So it's, it's some way of doing some balance so that you do some outreach, but then you also keep enough time to keep yourself balanced and, and really integrated in your meditation practice. Because that's the one thing that you see so often when, uh, when people are doing social um, service work is compassion burnout. You know, you work too hard and you take on too much and then you get really frazzled and then you just quit. 
you know. So rather than do that, it's much better to just keep things balanced. And for that reason, you know, really having a, a strong meditation practice and making sure our, our daily schedule includes time for that is really important. Okay, so then the Buddha um, uh, concludes this section saying, There are monastics, other matters, profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, excellent beyond mere thought, subtle, to be experienced by the wise, which the Tathagata, having realized them by his own super-knowledge, proclaims, and about which those who would speak truthfully praise the Tathagata, and about which those who would who would truth oh and about which those who would truthfully praise the Tathagata would rightly speak. Okay. So then we're gonna go um, you know at the beginning of this section from the second sutra, uh, the Buddha had asked the question, how do we p- live in perfect morality? So this was the answer, the stuff that we've just gone through since here.